Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena. And I'm Katie. And today we will be talking about some important vocabulary terms when it comes to disability and neurodiversity and activism. Yes, this episode has been a long time coming. We're really excited about it. We'll see how much we get through. <laughs> yeah, we, so just so you guys know, we've created a Google Doc and it's pretty long of like everything that we wanted to talk about. Oh my gosh, is it 10 pages? Oh no. <laughs> Don't say that. Don't tell me that. <laughs> it's a lot. There's a lot to know and a lot we wanted to share with people who are just learning about disability rights and community and culture. To people with disabilities that are listening, we wanted to say, please let us know if we leave anything out or if we misspeak at all. We are not all disabled people. We we don't have all disabled experiences between the two of us. And we will definitely do a follow-up episode because, first of all, we don't think we can fit everything into this episode. And second of all, if we miss anything. So please keep in touch on that. Yes. And with that being said, we... Um, we asked for your patience because we're not going to go really deep into these concepts. We're just going to do like a little overview. Like my Russian teacher told me in my Russian history class, we're going to be jet skiing over it, not scuba diving. Okay? <laughs> That's cute. I like that. Yeah, it is really cute because there's so much to cover. So we're going to try to speak carefully and articulately but we might miss some nuance just know this is to educate people and also for ourselves as well to kind of keep track of where our learning is yeah yeah okay number one this had to be the first thing we talk about what is ableism it's a word we use a lot accessliving.org wrote the discrimination of and social prejudice against people with disabilities based on the belief that typical abilities are superior. At its heart, ableism is rooted in the assumption that disabled people require fixing and defines people by their disability. Oxford English Dictionary said it's a discrimination in favor of able-bodied people. One thing I wanted to point out is there's a dual nature of ableism, meaning it's seen in individual behavior and social structures and institutions. Also, I wanted to say a lot of the definitions of ableism were really problematic in my eyes. I was reading it and I was like, I don't think a disabled person wrote this definition or I don't know. I had to be really careful about which one I was like, okay, this one is the most fair definition. I noticed a lot of the definitions said, most ableism is unintentional. And I'm like, mm, okay, why why is there a need for able-bodied people to point that out? Like, I think it's it can be helpful for disabled people to know that. But when that is always the response, when a disabled person points something out that is problematic and ableist, I, in a way, it's almost like ignoring or putting to the side the disabled person's feelings and siding with the able-bodied person who was the offender. And that's wrong to me. Yes. I mean, we also have to say, at least in my experience, most times when I see something ableist and I point it out vocally or talk about it with someone, 
a lot of times people don't notice it. People aren't aware of it. And that's, you know, whatever. It's not in their world necessarily. I believe if a person starts learning about the disability community and what we're fighting for and what we're facing, people will start noticing ableism more often in their lives. So that's a gap that can be bridged. It's like, I'm not a person of color or a gay person, but the more I'm learning about the community, the more I notice when things happen, when someone says something homophobic or when black people are misrepresented on a show, on TV, or if they're put in a stereotypical role or if they're casted as like a background character and not centered and it it happens over and over and over again. I start to notice these things the more I educate myself. And I am by no means perfect, but I see how important it is to constantly be in connection with the community as much as I can, learn about what the conversations are that are happening, what they're pointing out as problematic, do my best to be humble and to listen and amplify their voices. And hello, believe them. When they say something is racist, they're unfortunately professionals at that. They know. They know when something is racist or whatever, backhanded in a prejudiced way. When a disabled person says something is ableist and saying, hey, this is a problem. Hey, this is a stereotype. Hey, this is a barrier we face. Able-bodied people should believe them. Other disabled people should believe them. They know what they're talking about and they see it all the time and they experience it. Yes. My point is, if that's the first reaction, oh, but they didn't mean it. When I point something out, this is ableist, this is hurtful. Think about how that's like just excusing away what just happened and not siding with the disabled person and saying, yeah, hey, that's problematic. That shouldn't have happened. In that moment, who does the responsibility fall on? When something problematic happens that's ableist, if you say, oh, it wasn't intentional or they only had good intentions, the responsibility doesn't fall on the able-bodied person if it, quote unquote, wasn't their fault or wasn't on purpose, but the responsibility falls on the disabled person to forgive and to be graceful and to get over it or move on. That doesn't solve anything. That doesn't actually address the issues of ableism. We push disabled people to learn from the experience and to be graceful. Why don't we push able-bodied people to learn why it was wrong rather than saying it was said or done with good intentions, which seeks to excuse away the harm that's already been caused? Do you see what I mean? It doesn't matter if it's unintentional or not. Impact is what matters. And... Yep. Always impact over intent. Um, That's been one of my mantras for a long time. And I think that uh, can be applied to lots of isms when we're talking about racism, talking about sexism, talking about ableism, all of that. People who are the oppressors or the, I guess, if if that word is too loaded for you, if you cannot fathom that you are an oppressor, the people who make these mistakes that end up hurting marginalized people will often use that excuse. I didn't mean it. I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't, I, I had good intentions. Well, person, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Okay. 
Also, since you were talking about that, I know this is later on in the Google Doc, but uh, do you really quick want to touch on Nothing About Us Without Us? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Nothing About Us Without Us is a phrase that's kind of the theme of disability rights. It's been traced back to South African disability rights advocates in the 80s. But before that, it was actually a slogan that Eastern European labor organizers had. So it's been used for a couple different groups fighting for rights in some ways, but it's best known as a slogan for the disability rights movement around the world, really. It's just a phrase to say, like, please don't try to explain disabled experiences without involving disabled people. Yes, exactly. And I'm going to talk about really quick couple of concepts that I mention a lot. One of them is capitalism. Capitalism as a system is inherently ableist. It's a system that values money and profit over life by exploiting cheap labor. You only get rewards or money or life supplies if you work or produce something. And this is inherently ableist because disabled people often cannot physically produce things. Things that are deemed worthy by a capitalist and ableist society. I Good like, yeah. yeah. It, it begs the question, where do disabled people fit into that equation in a society that is capitalist? We are often tossed to the side and said we're not worth as much and we don't deserve to live. Yeah. And with that being said, I'm going to talk about really quick toxic positivity yes how do I say this toxic positivity affects everybody I think it's something that is toxic regardless it's basically this mindset that you can do anything if you just put your mind to it overwhelmingly positive you just need to decide to do it you know you can decide to be happy you can decide all these things you can decide to have a good life just put your mind to it anyway and this denies the real experiences of people who are disabled and whose brains and bodies work in different ways and our brains and bodies simply have limitations where like us deciding to do something really has no bearing on whether or not it gets done. Examples of that are like, just calm down, or good vibes only, or you can do anything you put your mind to, or you should think more positively. And we see this a lot in the church. (laughs) The church is an incubator for toxic positivity, in my mind, at least in the current church, I feel like. So, Mm. yeah. And it's hard because there is a balance between like, there is real power in faith. There are miracles that happen today, but that doesn't mean that hard things don't still happen. There are people that are depressed and then are baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and are still depressed. That doesn't mean that there aren't miracles in their life. That doesn't mean that they're not good faithful members. And that further pushes people that are diverse or disabled out of the church. Yep. All right. You ready to talk about ableist language? Oh, yeah. Okay. Trigger warning. We're going to mention some ableist language in this next section. So the overall preferred term for disabled people is disabled, disability. Able-bodied people kind of tiptoe around the word sometimes. It's not a bad word. It's just a neutral word. 
people tiptoe around the word often use the words differently abled, handicapable, just words that are like weird and stigmatized and just like kind of skip over the meaning of the word. They're just um, trying to make themselves feel better. Yeah. Trying to make themselves feel more comfortable. Well, we are the ones who have to live with it. So we are the ones who decide what's comfortable. So anyway, continue. Yeah, I should say, actually, so the opposite of kind of tiptoeing around the words is using words that point to disability in a way that takes it too far. It speaks to the harsh history of disability or it pokes fun at disability. Words that are generally seen as slurs are the R word, retarded, and crippled. Those words especially have, I I mean, would you say slurs? I would say slurs. Yeah, they're slurs. Mm-hmm. There is a practice in social justice and civil rights movements of reclaiming words that used to be slurs. However, as someone who is not part of that community, you don't get to decide when when to use it. You know, it's that it's the community's empowering decision if and when we slash they decide to reclaim a word. Yeah. So I don't think we use the word retard. Uh, I don't think that's, I mean, yeah, that's not a reclaimed word. Disabled is a reclaimed word. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Different disabled people are at different levels of reclaiming words. And that's why it's so important to not police disabled people with their language, whatever they decide to use. Able-bodied people should listen to these guidelines and not use this language. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. So special needs, the community of intellectually disabled people have really emphasized this special needs are not a thing everyone needs food water love human connection etc these needs are not special disabled people have human needs wheelchair user versus wheelchair bound confined to a wheelchair suffers from a disability any vocabulary that puts a negative spin on someone who just exists with a disability is not needful just say wheelchair user or disabled person. Overcoming a disability. <laughs> this one like drives me so wild. I don't know why, but this one, literally you can't overcome a disability. Stop saying overcoming a disability. Yeah. You can use aids or accommodations to help you work through some of your weaknesses or get through a situation, but you cannot overcome a disability. I shared on our Instagram story a little bit ago, people are going to say, but miracles, but faith. Mm. (laughs) Even when Christ healed the lepers, they didn't overcome their disability. Christ healed them. It's, I don't know. It's just a different conversation. Overcoming, it just feeds into the fact that you are not worthy if you're a disabled person, if you exist as a disabled person and need accommodations. Yeah. And then we talked a little bit about this, about toxic positivity, uh, saying things like the only disability in life is a negative attitude, or aren't we all a little bit autistic, or aren't we all a little bit on the spectrum? Just a reminder that when you say these things, you diminish disabled and neurodiverse people's actual lived experiences. You ignore and excuse real barriers. Basically, you're trying to absorb them into the able-bodied identity, not allowing them the space to have their own identity as disabled or neurodivergent. Right. Also, referring to people who don't have disabilities as normal people, uh, I think you mean 
non-disabled person or able-bodied person, or maybe you must mean a person without a disability. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to say yeah. normal person. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was thinking about this because I was talking with one of my best friends and he was asking me, he was like, wait, Serena, on your podcast, you talk about like neurotypical and neurodiverse. Am I neurodiverse? Like, what does neurotypical mean? And I was like, I struggle to like give him an answer that didn't include the word normal. Like, it means you don't think in a normal way. No, like, ah, no, that's not right. I don't know how to explain it. So let's define neurodivergent really quick before we move on. And neurotypical. So basically, neurodiversity is the viewpoint that brain differences are normal rather than a bad thing or weakness or a deficit, just like we have diversity of skin color or diversity of gender, there's also diversity in the way our brains work, you know? Society is run by and caters to people whose brains work in a specific way and excludes and hurts people whose brains work in alternate ways. Yeah, and when we interviewed Brooke, she gave a really good definition of neurotypical and neurodiversity. Neurotypical, for short, means someone who does not experience a neurodivergence, being autistic, ADHD, learning disabilities, or psychological divergence. Yeah. Okay, back to our uh, ableist words. Yeah, so this next list is from a YouTuber. The channel's called Disabled Eliza. She gives a list of common ableist language that we use just randomly in our day. Are you blind or blind spots? Blind people don't have a lack of knowledge of things. They simply have different ways of attaining it. So saying that doesn't make sense. I'm so deaf or falling on deaf ears. That belittles experience of deaf people. Using it casually is disrespectful because it's, mm -hmm. it's a literal language and culture. Uh, saying that's crazy or he's psycho or nuts. That is offensive to people experiencing poor mental health saying that's lame the word lame refers to someone who can't or has trouble walking so that again puts disability in a, in a negative light another one is i'm so ocd Ooh. Uh, that's not even what ocd means right it doesn't make sense ocd isn't just liking things in order or organizing your clothes by color or liking things clean it's a literal condition that includes compulsion, intrusive thoughts, and extreme stress. So just saying casually, I'm so OCD, uh, it's very disrespectful and doesn't make sense. Yeah. They're so dumb. The original meaning for someone who is dumb is someone who cannot speak, but that meaning has changed to reference someone or something that is less intellectual. Just a note there, being nonverbal has nothing to do with a level of intellect. And also, level of intellect does not equal the value of a person. She's a moron. In the past, the word moron was used to categorize people as lesser, which actually, let me read this article that explains that. This is an article written for the OG History series. It's written by Marlena Scott. They wrote, in the United States, eugenics influenced much of the immigration and segregation policies in the 20th century. Moron, and other words like it, such as idiot, 
were used to support racist, classist ideas and to advance white supremacy behind the mask of scientific advancement. In the early 20th century, psychologists grouped people who fell behind the ideal measure of intelligence into three categories that we now recognize as casual insults, imbecile, idiot, and feeble-minded. Psychologist and eugenist Henry Goddard, unsatisfied with the existing term, coined the word moron to embody both low intelligence and behavioral deviance. None of these endured as medical terms, but at the time, they were enough to institutionalize someone and sterilize them as a means to prevent them from reproducing. So yeah, really problematic word, really dark history with that word, also with the words imbecile and idiot. We'll go more into disability history in a different episode, but there's a little bit of history to just show how dark that word is. I'm so addicted, that phrase stigmatizes people experiencing poor mental health. It's linked to crime and illegal activity a lot, which criminalizes people. And when people say, I'm so addicted, it's seen as a choice instead of something that someone just has no choice over. And then uh, we talked about earlier, I'm so depressed. Uh, When able-bodied people use it, I should say, if you're actually depressed, like, of course, you can use that phrase. But when able-bodied people use it and they mean to say, I'm so sad today or I'm having a hard day, that's not good to do. And then the phrase, he's a spaz or she's such a spaz. Spaz is slang for spastic, which refers to the muscle function of a physically disabled person. Using disability to describe something negative is always wrong. Look at our Instagram and our Facebook. We're going to share alternatives to these ableist phrases. A lot of people will say like, well, what am I supposed to say then? We'll give you a list. We'll give you some ideas. Let's expand your vocabulary and be inclusive in your language. Yes. And like we said before, as the disabled community continues to evolve and reclaim different words and recognize new or previously unrecognized disabilities, they may change. This chart may become outdated in the future, and that's okay. We'll just find or make a new chart. (laughs) The next thing we're going to mention is identity first language versus person first language. This depends on the person and sometimes the community. Some disabled people prefer to say, I'm disabled or I'm a disabled person. For example, for me, identity first language would be saying, I'm narcoleptic or I'm cataplectic or I'm borderline versus person first language would be person with such and such disability. Example for me would be, I'm a person with narcolepsy, I'm a person with cataplexy, or I'm a person with borderline. For me, I I alternate between the two. That's just me personally. Depends on <laughs> what I'm writing and how concise I'm trying to be. But overall, it seems like most disabled people actually prefer identity first language, meaning disabled person, because they believe it's part of who they are and that distancing people from disability assumes that disability is bad and that people don't want to be connected to it so if it's not bad it doesn't matter if you are connected to it because that's just the way it is right 
However, some people with disabilities do prefer person-first language because they believe disability is only one aspect of their lives and that they have many other identifiers that could represent them. Some people have different or no preference. That'd be me. Just ask people what their preference is. Although I don't have a preference when you're referring to me, but I do fall more into the first camp of identity first language in terms of like what I believe regarding my disabilities. Like I don't think you can separate me from them, if that makes sense, at least from my cataplexy. That's a good point. Me personally, I feel like I can kind of flow between both and I don't have a huge preference. But I do find that I do slightly lean more into preferring identity first language, calling me a disabled person, because it bugs me when people tiptoe around disability. I feel like just say it just like it's not something that's scary or controversial. It's just a thing. Just say it. But if someone says person first language with me, I wouldn't really correct them. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like a pendulum, you know, it kind of goes back and forth as society goes more towards one extreme of person first language, then disabled people are like, well, okay, but this is part of who we are, you know? And so then we get the pendulum to swing back that way. And then society takes it too far. And we're like, hey, uh, you know, we're more than just our disabilities, you know, like we're this and this and this too, you know, it's constantly swinging. It really honestly speaks to how disability truly is neutral at its core. And people try to treat it like it's this super great positive thing or it's this super horrible negative thing. When society leans one way or the other, it feels weird because it is in and of itself neutral. Yes. Ah, I love it. Okay. Disability models. Go. So this is a little bit into disability theory, but we thought we would mention this because it goes well with the idea of positive, neutral, negative. Disability models, there's the medical model or the social model. This breakdown is by Heather McCain from canbc.org. It's a blog spinoff of Creating Accessible Neighborhoods Group. So the medical model says disability is a deficiency or an abnormality, whereas the social model says that disability is a difference just as a person's gender, age, race. The medical model says that a disability is negative, whereas the social model says that having a disability is neutral. It is just a part of who you are. The medical model says disability is in you. It is your problem, whereas the social model says that disability exists in the interactions between the individual and society. Disability issues stem from when someone with a disability tries to function in an inaccessible society. Guess which which model we ascribe to more on this <laughs> right? podcast. Uh, medical model also says the remedy is trying to find a medical cure or trying to make a person appear less disabled or more normal, whereas the social model says the remedy is a change in their interaction between individual and society. When society changes, the issues of a person with a disability disappear. Yeah, an example of this is I, I went to a narcolepsy conference a couple of years ago, and it was interesting, like how many panels they had on different medications, new research in narcolepsy, and will there ever be a cure, etc. I don't know. It's interesting because, like, if I'm working full time, I definitely need medication. Otherwise, I can't get through the day. And even then, like, I have no energy or spoons. We're going to talk about that later for afterwards. But like. Now, when I'm not working and we're in quarantine and I'm living at home, 
finishing a master's program that is very well suited to my pace and my talents. And so it doesn't feel difficult. And I'm not out trying to earn money just to survive. And all of a sudden, I'm like, why do I need medication? The structures in my life are just different. And so I don't really need it. You know, I can go to sleep when I want to uh, wake up when I want to, you know, I don't need to push myself any harder than I want to or than I need to, you know, anyway, that's just an example. Medication versus changing your lifestyle. And the latter is more ideal, at least in my opinion, but it's definitely something that's difficult in a capitalist society. The only reason that I'm able to do it right now is because of quarantine and the generosity of of my family. And some disabled people simply don't have the privilege of family members who are willing to let them stay with them. Yes. Okay. Inspiration porn. It's a phrase that I use a lot because I see it a lot. (laughs) And I know uh, the idea of pornography and porn in our church is like really, really like a touchy subject. So I'm sure it kind of shocks people when I say it, but it's a really great way to describe how disabled people are portrayed in society. So inspiration porn is when disabled people are portrayed as amazingly inspirational for doing something that is like an everyday thing. I shared this example in the Beyond the Block episode, but if you see a person that has leg amputation and they're playing basketball and they're shooting a basket and underneath it says, what's your excuse? Or going up to someone in the grocery store and saying, it's just so inspiring that you're here. Like you're just so brave for being here. Yes, there are barriers in grocery stores and in public places beyond that. And that is difficult and something that needs to be talked about. But it's something that a disabled person has to figure out and has to find accommodations for. And however they find accommodations for, that's awesome. There needs to be more resources. But calling them a hero for doing an everyday activity just puts disability in a light that's more digestible for able-bodied people. I mean, in ways, inspiration porn includes the idea that disability is overly negative. Again, the idea of like, you have to overcome your disability for you to be valuable. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. Okay. Do you want to talk about stereotypes? Yeah. So I maybe have mentioned I did my final paper in college on this idea that there are a lot of stereotypes. This probably isn't all of them, but here's some common stereotypes that are put upon disabled people. There are misfits or burdens on both society and family. They're pitiful and downtrodden. They're eternally childlike, uneducated, unemployable, unable to have or maintain a romantic or intimate relationship. Super crip, meaning kind of like inspiration porn, Unable to live independently or successfully. They're scary, dangerous, evil, or better off dead. And I feel like listing these things, people are probably like, like roll your eyes, like you're making it more dramatic than what it is. But literally, if you look at media portrayals, these are very common stereotypes. How often do you see a disabled person in a romantic relationship on a TV show? Or if you don't prescribe to this, that's fine. But being intimate with someone on a TV show, 
And then Better Off Dead, there's a lot of people that say or think or portray in how they portray disabled people that it's too hard of a life that they'd rather die than be disabled. There's a couple different movies that literally the main character becomes disabled and they ask for assisted suicide and they're granted that. And we'll talk about this with real examples of ableism in society in a different episode, but literally drugs that allow assisted suicide are more accessible to disabled people than able-bodied people with like how you obtain that drug from your physician. Sounds really harmful to me and it definitely is. There's been studies done on that. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so that's why stereotypes are so important to talk about because it literally affects our lives, not just our feelings of not feeling included, which are important, but how we literally fit into the structure of society. Yeah. One example that's really easy to think about is Scar in The Lion King. He has a big, huge scar across his face, and he's evil. Like, why did he need to have a scar? Why did he need to have that imperfection? The fact that you're associating this quote-unquote imperfection with a scary and dangerous character is Mm -hmm. just kind of encapsulates everything that you're saying about stereotypes and disability. Yeah, and that's a great example because it's literally fed to us from when we're children to when we're adults in the media in a lot of different subtle ways. Okay, so visible versus invisible disabilities. It's a little bit self-explanatory, but I'll just go over it really quick. A visible disability is a disability that you see. Able-bodied people will notice right off the bat if someone's using a wheelchair or crutches or other mobility aids like canes or service dogs that is more recognizable as a disability versus invisible disabilities are disabilities. If you don't know that person, if it's a stranger, you might think, wait, are they really disabled? Are they faking it? You know, like they look able-bodied. They don't, you don't look sick. You know, um, and I fall into that ladder camp because I don't use a wheelchair. I mean, I can walk uprightly sometimes, but not all the time. The thing you have to remember is a lot of illnesses that cause disabilities or that are caused by disabilities, you can't see them. There's lots of different chronic illnesses and I, I can't even name them all. So just recognize that. There are so many that you don't know about and stop questioning people about whether or not their illness or disability is real. Yeah, that goes into ambulatory wheelchair users. There are some people who use wheelchairs who can stand up and can walk. For example, me. (laughs) I use crutches normally, but there are times that I need a wheelchair if it's been an especially hard day, if I'm feeling more chronic pain than usual, or if I'm going a long distance. These people exist and their use of mobility aids are valid and also none of your business. (laughs) Yeah. This is a big one too. If you see someone with a handicap placard parking in a handicap spot and they're getting out of their car and they just like walk into the store, don't assume that they're not disabled because there's a lot of disabilities that again are invisible and would appear like they're faking it, but they're not. They need that spot. And there's a lot that you have to go through to get a handicap placard. You have to get a doctor visit and blah, blah, blah. So do not question people. And oh my gosh, don't like approach people and question them to their face, please. There's even a woman I follow on social media who is an amputee and she was wearing long pants and she got out of her car and someone was like, you're not even disabled. And she's like, 
I literally have an, I'm an, an MVP. Like, it's just ridiculous how people feel like they have to do that. On the flip side, don't use handicap parking if you don't need it, please. Yeah. <laughs> I feel I'm, I'm trying to overcome that because I do have a handicap placard. I need to get it renewed because my doctor did not have the foresight or understanding of my medical condition to realize that it's a chronic condition. So he gave me a temporary placard. So I'm like, what the hell? (laughs) What do you think is going to (laughs) happen? Like, anyway, I still use it (laughs) because I have a permanent condition. And this goes into like a lot of disabled people, especially those with invisible illnesses or chronic illnesses, we feel kind of like our disabilities aren't as quote unquote real. Like it's this whole process of invalidation that we receive from society on a daily basis. And so we have this imposter syndrome, like and we think maybe I should leave the handicapped parking spaces for someone who really needs it. But okay, if your doctor signed the form to let you have a placard, then you do need it. And personally, I don't experience chronic pain with my illness. There are some people with disabilities who do experience chronic pain. And so even though I do need to park closer to the store, I feel like I don't need to be the closest to the store. That's nice. But imposter syndrome, that's so hard. Yeah, it is hard. It's especially with invisible disabilities. I'm sure it's just another level of difficulty that it is to function in society with a disability. So like I said, even within myself, I go back and forth, but I'm trying to be better about fighting through my imposter syndrome and parking in the handicapped spot if I do feel like I need it that day. Well, the hard thing is too, and there's other disabilities like yours, where you get out of the car and you're like, okay, I'm fine. And you walk into the store and then something happens and you can't get back to your car. So that's another thing that people really just can't judge. Yep, that's very true. Anyway, yeah, so that's something that I personally am trying to work through and other people who have invisible illnesses and chronic illnesses. Anyway, spoons! (gasps) Yay! I wanted to talk about this. In the chronic illness community, you're going to encounter this phrase a lot, spoon or spoonies. It's on a lot of our hashtags and posts. This was coined by... A woman named Christine Miserandino. Hope I'm pronouncing her name right. In the story, she recounts how she and her best friend were in a diner talking, and her friend knows that she has lupus, which, like I said, is a chronic illness. And her friend asked her, like, was it really like to have lupus? And Christine kind of started rambling, and her friend kept on probing a little bit like what is it really like you know and Christine is finally like okay you know what I have an idea right and I'll start reading here she asked me what it felt like not physically but what it felt like to be me to be sick as I tried to gain my composure I glanced around the table for help or guidance or at least stall for time to think I was trying to find the right words how do I answer a question I was never able to answer for myself How do I explain every detail of every day being affected and give the emotions a sick person goes through with clarity? Could have given up, cracked a joke, changed the subject. But I remember thinking, if I don't try to explain this, how could I ever expect her to understand? If I can't explain this to my best friend, how can I explain my world to anyone else? I had to at least try. At that moment, the spoon theory was born. 
I quickly grabbed every spoon on the table. Hell, I grabbed spoons off of the other tables. I looked her in the eyes and said, here you go, you have lupus. She looked at me slightly confused, as anyone would when they are being handed a bouquet of spoons. The cold metal spoons clanked in my hands as I grouped them together and shoved them into her hands. I explained that the difference in being sick and being healthy is having to make choices or consciously think about things when the rest of the world doesn't have to. The healthy have the luxury of a life without choices, a gift most people take for granted. Most people start the day with unlimited possibilities and energy to do whatever they desire, especially young people. For the most part, they do not need to worry about the effects of their actions. So for my explanation, I used spoons to convey this point. I wanted something for her to actually hold, for me to then take away, since most people who get sick feel a loss of a life they once knew. If I was in control of taking away the spoons, then she would know what it feels like to have someone or something else, in this case lupus, being in control. She grabbed the spoons with excitement. She didn't really understand what I was doing. I asked her to count her spoons. She asked why, and I explained that when you're healthy, you expect to have a never-ending supply of spoons. But when you have to plan your day, you need to know exactly how many spoons you're starting with. It doesn't guarantee that you might not lose some along the way, but at least it helps to know where you're starting. She counted out 12 spoons. She laughed and said she wanted more. I said no, and I knew right away that this little game would work when she looked disappointed and we hadn't even started yet. I've wanted more spoons. <laughs> Sorry, that line is just... <laughs> Continue. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, she continues, I've wanted more spoons for years and haven't found a way yet to get more. Why should she? I also told her to always be conscious of how many she had and not to drop them because she can never forget she has lupus. Then I asked her to list off the tasks of her day, including the most simple. As she rattled off daily chores or just fun things to do, I explained how each one would cost her a spoon. When she jumped right into getting ready for work as her first task of the morning, I cut her off and took away a spoon. I practically jumped down her throat. I said, no, you don't just get up. You have to crack open your eyes and then realize you're late. You didn't sleep well the night before. You have to crawl out of bed. Then you have to make yourself something to eat before you can do anything else, because if you don't, you can't take your medicine, and if you don't take your medicine, you might as well give up all your spoons for today and tomorrow, too. I quickly took away a spoon, and she realized she hadn't even gotten dressed yet. Showering cost her a spoon just for washing her hair and shaving her legs. Reaching high and low that early in the morning could actually cost more than one spoon, but I figured I would give her a break. I didn't want to scare her right away. (laughs) (laughs) getting dressed was worth another spoon i stopped her and broke down every task to show her how every little detail needs to be thought about you cannot simply just throw clothes on when you're sick i explained that i have to see what clothes i can physically put on if my hands hurt that day buttons are out of the question if i have bruises that day i need to wear long sleeves and if i have a fever i need a sweater to stay warm and so on if my hair is falling out i need to spend more time to look presentable and then you need to factor in another five minutes for feeling badly that it took you two hours to do all this I think she was starting to understand when she theoretically didn't even get to work and she was left with six spoons. I then explained to her that she needed to choose the rest of her day wisely, since when your spoons are gone, they are gone. Sometimes you can borrow against tomorrow's spoons, but just think how hard tomorrow will be with less spoons. I also needed to explain that a person who is sick always lives with the looming thought that tomorrow may be the day that a cold comes or an infection or any number of things that could be very dangerous. 
So you don't want to run low on spoons because you never know when you'll truly need them. I didn't want to depress her, but I needed to be realistic. And unfortunately, being prepared for the worst is part of a real day for me. We went through the rest of the day and she slowly learned that skipping lunch would cost her a spoon, as well as standing on a train or even typing at her computer too long. She was forced to make choices and think about things differently. Hypothetically, she had to choose not to run errands so that she could eat dinner that night. When we got to the end of her pretend day, she said she was hungry. I summarized that she had to eat dinner, but she only had one spoon left. If she cooked, she wouldn't have enough energy to clean the pots. If she went out for dinner, she might be too tired to drive home safely. Then I also explained that I didn't even bother to add into this game that she was so nauseous that cooking was probably out of the question anyway. So she decided to make soup since it was easy. I then said, it's only 7 p.m. You have the rest of the night, but maybe end up with one spoon. So you can do something fun or clean your apartment or do chores, but you can't do it all. I rarely see her emotional, so when I saw her upset, I knew maybe I was getting through to her. I didn't want my friend to be upset, but at the same time, I was happy to think finally, maybe someone understood me a little bit. She had tears in her eyes and asked quietly, Christine, how do you do it? Do you really do this every day? I explained that some days were worse than others. Some days I have more spoons than most, but I can never make it go away, and I can't forget about it. I always have to think about it. I handed her a spoon I'd been holding in reserve. I said simply, I've learned to live life with an extra spoon in my pocket in reserve. You need to always be prepared. It's hard. The hardest thing I ever had to learn is to slow down and not do everything. I fight this to this day. I hate feeling left out, having to choose to stay home or to not get things done that I want to. I wanted her to feel that frustration. I wanted her to understand that everything everyone else does comes so easy, but for me, it is 100 little jobs in one. I need to think about the weather, my temperature that day, and the whole day's plans before I can attack any one given thing. When other people can simply do things, I have to attack it and make a plan like I'm strategizing a war. It is in that lifestyle, the difference between being sick and healthy. It is the beautiful ability to not think and just do. I miss that freedom. I miss never having to count spoons. After that, she talks about how she connected with her friend and reassured her that it wasn't costly for her to go to dinner with her. Or it was costly, but she chose it anyway. But yeah, the whole making a plan like I'm strategizing a war. <laughs> anyway, that's spoon theory. And something that we as disabled people and people with chronic illnesses have to think about every day. So that was part one of our vocab episode. We'll have a part two coming out. Be sure to follow us on social media. We like to have discussions on Instagram at holyhuman. That's W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. And our Facebook is at Holy Human Podcast. Our email, if you would like to shoot us a review or a request for collaboration, holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. Also, thank you to Mativ for our intro and outro music. We accessed the song through freesound.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>